MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 45 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. Woo, I've been waiting for this day. (laughs) (laughs) It is Wednesday, November 24th, the day before Thanksgiving, and I am your co-host, Andrew Torres. And happy 45 for 45. I'm Allison Gill, back in the saddle and with so much to share this week. Uh, But first, it's time to thank our amazing patrons who support us for as little as a buck an episode over at patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. Thank you to... Two fabulous thespians from Dakota Territory, <laughs> Don5045, uh, Ricardo Gomez, regular dissonance. Uh, for a different dose of good news, try the happy hour, a palate cleansing new cat newscast, a podcast about happy news and solutions. And hashtag I voted from Canada, U.S. citizens living abroad should check out democratsabroad.org. Excellent. Ooh, yeah, yes, you should. And remember, that's patreon.com slash aisle45pod. You get the ad-free version of the show. You get the occasional goodies and get-togethers. It's it's worth it. Plus, it tells AG and I that you love us. So mm, That's the my, my favorite part. Yeah. Um, so before we get into the main segment, I know we both wanted to talk a little bit about the state of the country in light of tomorrow's holiday. Uh, a lot of you will be traveling as you listen to this show. And you probably know we're still in the throes of a pandemic. Uh, So the good news, we're at roughly half the rate of new infections that we were at this point last year. The bad news, that's still 90,000 new cases a day. And at the rate of infection, it's on the rise in 30 states, especially in the upper Midwest and Northeast, where it gets cold and you're not likely to do Thanksgiving outside. Nationally, three quarters of beds in intensive care units are full. More than one in seven are filled by COVID-19 patients. Yeah, I mean, that it, really, really good points. This is a glass half full, glass half empty kind of moment, right? Like you've probably seen that Austria is entering a lockdown and um, some areas of Germany have shut down like the traditional Christmas markets at this time. Well, Austria, 66% of the population have been fully vaccinated against COVID. In the U.S., it is 59%. I'm not saying that's the only thing that's in common, but, you know. Um, so remember, the Pfizer vaccine is now approved by the CDC for children as young as five. It's available everywhere. Go into a drugstore if you have it. Seriously, like, just just, just walk in. Um, and if you have children under five, uh, consider masking around them or you know, not traveling. And for the love of God, don't go visit people who aren't vaccinated or or who have the like, well, I had COVID, so we're all fine now or whatever. 
Yeah, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> no, 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 it is not. But that is a good segue into the news of the Biden White House this past Monday that 95% of the federal workforce is in compliance with the administration's vaccine mandate. That's over 90% of workers who have received at least one shot, with the vast majority of that figure having received two shots. And like you and uh, Eli reported on last week, all of that came before the mandate went into effect. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's right. And keep in mind that the federal workforce policy does not allow you to substitute, you know, regular weekly. I mean, it is testing to opt out or anything. It is a full hardcore. You must be vaccinated. And it applies to federal government contractors, independent contractors, as well as full time government employees. Um, If only we could replicate that in the private sector. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about the fact that the uh, Biden's effort to do that, it would have applied to businesses with a hundred or more employees, right? So not your family farms, not Aunt Mabel's country store, right? Um, that's been uh, stayed by uh, injunction by the, um, by the, and, and is pending review in the sixth circuit. Uh, we will continue to update you on that. Um, but, but look like reports, from companies, from the airline industry, right? Like from from industries that have mandatory vaccination policies confirms it's not hard to get to 90, 95%. Yeah. And we're emphasizing this because in the words of Dr. Fauci, quote, unvaccinated people are the major source of coronavirus infections in the U.S. right now. Uh, 82 million people have not gotten their first dose of the vaccine and unvaccinated people are six times more likely than fully vaccinated people to test positive for COVID-19 and 11 times more likely to die of COVID-19. That's according to the latest CDC data, but now we're hearing 14 times as likely. It's just such a no brainer. So vax up, mask up and, you know, maybe don't invite Uncle Frank to Thanksgiving if you won't do likewise. Yeah, I have actually found that a lot of folks who are standing their ground saying you may not join us for Thanksgiving unless you are vaccinated have actually forced quite a few family members to get vaccinated. I, I've personally I've seen this in my life. So um, that that might be a good way. Of course, it's, you know, now probably a little too late, but maybe do that for Christmas um, <laughs> because you do have to wait a couple weeks after that second shot for it to be effective. Yeah. yeah. All right. On to the A block. All right. So, you know, we do a lot of comings and goings on the show, but this first story is about a staying. (laughs) And that is specifically Jerome H. Powell, Republican, renominated by Joe Biden to another four year term as chairman of the Federal Reserve. The move has been seen as a rebuke to a number of progressive lawmakers, including my unrequited crush, Liz Warren, and uh, the man who writes the best Supreme Court amicus briefs ever, Sheldon Whitehouse. I I say second to yours. Oh. Uh, although was that the Supreme Court? No, no, was, mine was yeah, mine was in yes. the Flynn case. So we can you can have both. Thank you. I can have both. Yay. Uh, their argument is that Powell isn't particularly interested in using the powers of the Federal Reserve to combat climate change, and lined up behind Lael uh, Brainerd instead. She was given the number two spot. And look. You don't have to dig very deep to find statements like Powell telling Democratic lawmakers his view of the Federal Reserve, quote, we are not and we don't seek to be climate policymakers. That led Warren to call him dangerous. Yeah, it, it sure did. Um, but it, and I hate being on the other side of Liz Warren on anything, uh, but it turns out this is a little more complicated than just Powell is a conservative and Brainerd is a liberal, right? 
as friend of the show, Catherine Rampell points out, Powell has been a pretty reliable ally for Biden's agenda at the Fed, given that the big issue facing the administration right now is whether to react or some would say overreact to reports of rising inflation <laughs> or, or whether to continue to pursue policies designed to create more job opportunities, particularly for lower income Americans. Yeah. And part of this is understanding exactly what the Fed does. Right. Just because, you know, for years <laughs> it would just be like, did the Fed talk today? Are interest rates moving? Kai Rizdahl will tell me. Um, but the Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. It sets the country's monetary policy and does so independently of either Congress or the president. So here's how that works. If the Fed increases the supply of money, that tends to lower interest rates and drive economic growth. Uh, well, why? Because of basic supply and demand, right? Mm -hmm. More supply of money drives down its relative price on the open market, and that's reflected immediately in the price investors demand for 30-year treasury bonds. Uh, that's the first link in the chain because lending institutions tie their interest rates to the bond rate. So more money supply equals lower interest rates. That's how that's that ladder of that's that chain of events. Yeah. And and the flip side is that more money and lower interest rates can lead to higher rates of inflation. Right. If rates are low, people are disincentivized to save. And if you dump a ton of money into the market, now people can afford to spend more for these same goods and services they were buying previously. And that tends to increase prices. Right. So that has to be viewed in light of last week's report that the annual inflation rate jumped to six point two percent. In October of 2021, that's a 13-year high. And of course, Republicans have used inflation now as another political club that they can use to bludgeon Joe Biden. Right. And let Uncle Frank know and his unvaccinated self when he comes to dinner that the reason <laughs> that prices increase when people can afford to buy more goods and services and I know that it's I shouldn't have to explain this to you, but <laughs> Uncle Frank needs to know when you strain the, when demand increases, you strain the supply. Okay, that increases prices. So it's a it's a whole it's a supply it's a profit deal, as uh, <laughs> he would say in the jerk. <laughs> um, but forty percent of the Republican Party thinks the Federal Reserve is a Ponzi scheme. So let's just talk about what the grownups in Washington think. Yeah. Uh, and right now, there's a serious debate among Democrats as to whether that inflation is long term. Uh, a structural factor as a result of the reshaping of the economy during COVID or whether it's more of a short-term factor. I say it's a short-term factor. Yeah, yeah. And and again, this tends to divide progressives from centrists in the Democratic Party. Centrists tend to be more hawkish on inflation because that's reflected in prices paid by middle-class consumers, so they're pushing for higher rates. Progressives, on the other hand, look at the economy, see that inflation has been near zero for decades, and that growth has not really benefited the worst off, and uh, think now would be a terrible time to raise rates before they've had a chance to create new jobs for the poorest sector. Yeah, I, I think that that well kind of illustrates that divide among, you know, the only party that is thinking rationally about the economy right now. Um, let's mention a couple of other policies that the Fed can do that affect interest rates and monetary supply and inflation, right? So first, they can buy and sell T-bills, right? That's separate from bonds, right? When, when the Fed sells T-bills, that takes money out of circulation uh, and puts it in the hands of the Federal Reserve, right? They're, they're taking your money and they're giving you the Treasury bill. That contracts the supply and drives up interest rates, right? 
When they buy T-bills, it's the reverse. They dump a bunch of money into the economy. They take it out of the Federal Reserve, and that has the opposite effect. It drives down rates. So that's one thing they can do. Second, uh, they can change reserving requirements for banks. That's how much money the bank has to keep in its vaults uh, in order to pay back customers who come in and want to withdraw, right? So, you know, like in It's a Wonderful Life, right? Like the, the higher the reserving requirement, the safer your money is, but also the more the supply contracts, right? Because banks are keeping it in a vault rather than investing it in the economy. Um, and again, that drives up the interest rates. Um, and then the third thing the Fed can do is change the federal discount rate, right? So as you pointed out, uh, the Fed is our central bank. That means it sometimes loans money out to private banks. Now, why would a bank need to borrow money? Well, because of that second thing, right? Like when, when you have to recover your reserving requirements, right? If there's been a run on withdrawals, you don't just, you know, break George's piggy bank, right? You, you borrow money um, and you can borrow money from the Fed to make up that shortfall and the Fed charges you interest on that, right? So if you make the discount rate high, banks will not borrow from the Fed. They'll just borrow from other banks or other investors, right? But if you make the discount rate low enough, they'll borrow from the Fed. And again, that'll take more money out of the Federal Reserve and put it into the economy. Whew, okay. So <laughs> I think um, there's really two critical things here, right? Uh, the first is that there are not very many things the Fed does that directly affect climate change. Yeah. And there are only a few more where you your view of regulations come into play, right? Yeah. And the second is that all of those policies interact with each other, <laughs> of course, complicating everything, and all <laughs> of them are determined by the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors. So it's really important that the chairperson and the president be aligned in terms of what they want to achieve with monetary policy. A hostile Fed can undermine uh, pro-jobs, pro-growth administrations like the Biden administration by raising interest rates, or they can sink an administration that's trying to get costs and inflation under control by lowering them. Yeah, I, it, I think that's that's an excellent point. And even though Powell's a Republican, right, he has been completely in line with Biden in terms of preferring to risk higher inflation to create more jobs, right? So, for example, one of the very first things that Powell did um, six days after Biden was sworn in was to endorse, to put out a, a statement, I've read it, it's the Statement on Longer Run Goals and Monetary Policy Strategy, uh, which endorses a 2% average inflation over the long run, redefined maximum employment as a broad-based and inclusive goal, and instructed the Fed, and this is really important, to pay attention to the granularity of unemployment rates, right? So that even when overall unemployment rates are low, um, that could mask um, low growth or even contraction, right? Increasing unemployment rate among American-Americans, among workers with less education, among other minority populations. Um, and so those are real changes. Yeah. And I got to find out where he got that language from, because I think, as we know, and we talked about this pretty much during the entire Trump presidency, when that T-bill got inverted or whatever, uh, and we're like, Jerome Powell, first Fed chair without a college degree in econ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So who's who told him about granular the granularity of unemployment I, rates? I want to know. Yep. Yep. Uh, but that's what he put out. Uh, and let's point out the flip side. Even though Powell was nominated for the top chair by Trump, after Trump drastically reduced the corporate tax rate, Powell responded by raising interest rates. The logic there was sound. 
We were at a time in the midst of an economic expansion. Unemployment was at a 50-year low. Uh, the, everything was steamrolling along. And, and the risk then was that infusing a ton of tax giveaways to the private sector would drive up inflation. So Powell didn't hesitate to break with Trump, who wanted that and low interest rates. Remember when he got pissed at him? Yep. Even though Trump called out Powell in public as loco. Uh, uh, he's like, loco. no, I want low interest rates and super wealthy tax breaks. I, you know, and, and everyone was like, what? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, your points are well taken, right? Like this is not a, uh, uh, you know, Powell for president train that we're on. Like I get what Warren and White House and others are, are doing and saying, right? It is more than reasonable to be frustrated at the lack of progress that's being made on climate change, especially given the immediacy of doing things, right? Carbon taxes were cut from Build Back Better. It's one of the few legitimate complaints that I think progressives have about that. It's seriously disappointing. So you want to lash out, you want to demand people do something about it. Absolutely. I'm with you. But Let's understand practically what we're talking about in the battle over the Federal Reserve chair, right? We're talking about the question, and, and really, this is the only thing that I can think of, is should the Federal Reserve require banks to have higher reserving requirements when lending money to fossil fuel companies, right? That's what this debate is over, right? I can see why you'd want that. Like, Liz Warren wants that. Um it's a good part as part of a general strategy to reduce the overall economic value of fossil fuel companies. But but I think you have to concede that it is a strategy at the margins. Sure. Uh, you know, but also uh, to, to side with uh, Warren a little bit and White House on this, not the White House, but White House <laughs> uh, is and I guess the White House, too, <laughs> but but not so much since he's keeping Jerome Powell is that. There are so many other qualified people, but yep, I, no uh, argument there. It's so that's probably why there's multiple things going on here. Uh, first of all, the move may—it's possible it's designed to shore up Biden's economic policies and build back better, even though it's being portrayed as sticking it to the left. Uh, but I have to say, I do think we should hold the administration accountable for what it is and what it is not doing on climate change. Uh, and and so long as the Senate remains deadlocked, thanks to the filibuster, I get the argument that we should be doing whatever we can uh, throughout uh, the rest of our government. And, and Andrew, you and I have said weeks after week after week uh, in the comings and goings, you know, there are always plenty of super overqualified candidates to take these jobs, a lot of them first. Uh, but, you know, there's probably a political strategy at play here and maybe even a little bit of a bipartisan strategy. Yeah. Yeah. that That's right. So uh, let's end uh, uh, on the words of someone that uh, knows way more about this than I do. Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren <laughs> quote, I anticipated it will be helpful to provide supervisory guidance for large banking institutions in their efforts to appropriately measure, monitor and manage material climate related risks following the lead of a number of other countries. Can't really argue with that. Nope. No, you can't. All right. That is the end of the A Block. We will be right back with more. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. It's Allison for Cleanup on L45, and today's show is brought to you by Policy Genius. While your holiday calendar starts filling up, let the folks at Policy Genius get your home and auto insurance shopping sorted faster than you can say, why do we still have daylight savings time? 
Policy Genius makes it easy to compare home and auto insurance in one place. They can help you find home and auto coverage similar to what you have now, but at a lower price. Like when I had to ditch USAA because they kept advertising on Tucker Carlson, I used Policy Genius to find my new policy, and I saved so much money. In fact, they've saved customers an average of 1250 bucks per year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance before. Their team will handle all the paperwork to set up your new policy and switch you over to your current one. Getting started is easy. First, head to policygenius.com and answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property. And then Policy Genius just takes it from there. They'll compare rates of America's top insurers from Progressive to Allstate to find your lowest quotes. The Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more, including bundling your home and auto policies. If they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. Their top-notch service has earned Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. All right, everybody, welcome back. We have some news on the slow-rolling efforts to oust DeJoy as Postmaster General. (laughs) In a surprise move, what's considered a surprise move. It wasn't surprising to me because I've been asking for this for a really long time. Uh, But Biden will not renominate two of the nine postal board members, including Ron Bloom, a Democrat nominated by Trump that supports DeJoy and a Republican also appointed by Trump. Woohoo. All right. Look, this is the move needed to get a majority of Biden appointees on the board, which then puts DeJoy's tenure in peril, right? As we have explained multiple times on the show, uh, the president cannot directly fire the postmaster general. That's why he's still there. This is in, this is the first step in that process, right? Now, from the Washington Post, quote, President Biden on Friday announced plans to nominate two former federal officials to the U.S. Postal Service's governing board, replacing key allies of postmaster general and uh, likely criminal Louis DeJoy, including its Democratic chairman. The move was a surprise to postal officials and even members of Congress, according to three people with knowledge of the matter and cast doubt on DeJoy's future at the agency. Still, I'm still surprised that this was a surprise. Okay, because (laughs) I was hoping he would fire them. Right. But I didn't know. And mainstream media wasn't telling us that their terms end December 8th. Uh, And and, but but as mentioned, this was not expected. The Post's report added, quote, Bloom, as recently as last week, told confidants he expected to be renominated. And that's according to one person familiar with his conversations. Oops. Last week, Trump appointees on the governing self board reelected him as chairman over the objection of Biden appointees. Yeah. And so if you need a little bit of a refresher about how we got here, it was not long after DeJoy, a former Republican fundraiser and deputy RNC finance chair, became the postmaster general that he became highly controversial. Uh, (laughs) He is, let's see, uh, facing an FBI investigation over a campaign finance scandal. Uh, He has other severe ethics allegations, including multiple conflicts of interest between his pre-existing businesses uh, and the USPS. Um, And uh, some of the other former deputy and RNC finance chairs, like this is great company that DeJoy runs in, right? Include Elliot Broidy, uh, Steve Wynn and Michael Cohen, which... um, you know, I guess if they got to, if, like if they put together a dad rock band, that would we could call it moral fortitude, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Irony dead. <laughs> uh, Biden, as you said, can't fire the postmaster general. That's why everyone's been screaming, fire him, fire him. You can't fire him. We can't fire the postmaster general. There's a reason for that, a very good reason, uh, though he probably wanted to. 
Uh, earlier this year, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters, I think we can all agree. Most Americans would agree the Postal Service needs leadership that can and will do a better job. A few days ago, she added, we are, of course, deeply troubled, continue to be deeply troubled, as many Americans are, by the earlier reporting on Postmaster General DeJoy's potential financial conflicts of interest and take serious issues with the job he's doing running the Postal Service. And then, I... bam, we announce these, <laughs> these nominees. Like, hmm. I, I mean, look, that sounds like a pretty perilous referendum on the future of DeJoy, no? I mean, the, the governing board of the U.S. Postal Service can remove DeJoy and the recent confirmation of Biden's nominees to the board increased the odds that it would now take such a step. But look, before today, um, I think lots of people on the left, lots of people who care about, uh, you know, not having somebody who uh, very likely conspired to uh, delay in sending out uh, absentee ballots during the election, right? Uh, it, it, it seemed like not a lot was moving forward. And that's because, um, as you said, A.G., uh, Trump nominee Ron Bloom, um, it, even though he's a Democrat, has been in the chair. Right. So in the spring, Bloom told The Atlantic, uh, quote, right now, I think DeJoy is the proper man for the job. He's earned my support and he will have it until he doesn't. And I have no particular reason to believe he will lose it. Well, <laughs> well we have you until we lost you, didn't we, Ron Bloom? Yeah. yeah. Trouble is, Bloom's term ends, as I said, December 8th. The Biden White House is going to replace him with Daniel Tangerlini, uh, who served as the administrator of the General Services Administration during the Obama administration. Yeah. And if you're wondering, uh, General Services Administration, that's GSA of the GSA Emily fame, uh, the Trump ally who refused to hand over the keys during the Biden transition, causing a delay in the peaceful transfer of power. Um, so there's that. Uh, and similarly, the White House also announced that Derek Kahn, a Republican and the former deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, would replace Republican John Barger, a current USPS board member. And again, that's because you have to have a mixed number of Democratic and Republican appointees on the board. Yeah, and as a former director, deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget, he might not be too happy about what happened with the Office of Management and Budget in the Ukraine scandal. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I, um, I would think finding anti-Trump Republicans would not be that hard in today's day and age, but what do I know? Well, they found a pro-DeJoy Democrat when they put I, Bloom on board. It seems like board, it would be so. much harder, no? <laughs> yeah, right? But anyway, that leaves us with a numbers game, Andrew. The Postal Service's governing board has nine members, uh, but no party can have more than five. Currently, six of the nine are Trump appointees, but one of his sextet is Bloom. That's the Democrat who backed to joy. Given this makeup, the Postmaster General has been relatively safe, right? Yep. So far, at least from the board, right? Yeah, but, uh, and A, let me compliment you on uh, your use of the word sextet. That is lovely. Thank you. Uh, and B, that now is likely to change, right? So mm. three of the current nine members are Biden appointees. Those of you who are good at math are already ahead of me on this. Uh, that's two Democrats and an independent. And now the incumbent president has nominated two more. So one Democrat to succeed Bloom and one Republican to succeed Barger. As a matter of arithmetic, that would give Biden appointees a majority on the board. Three Democrats, a Republican and an independent, which you would have to hope <laughs> would spell trouble for DeJoy and um, 
what he would like to do with the U.S. Postal Service. Well, given that Biden has now five nominees and and particularly what Jen Psaki had to say last God, week. God, I love her. From the White House press briefing room. She doesn't just talk out of her ass. You know, this is what the president wants her to say. Uh, And because of that, I imagine DeJoy's days are numbered. Uh, I, for one, can't wait to add him to the comings and goings (laughs) segment soon. So uh, that is what is happening in DeJoy news. And, And don't forget, it was October of 2020 that the Postmaster Inspector General was looking into those allegations against DeJoy and whether he was, you know, conducting himself criminally. And that ended up being a federal investigation. So I think it's probably a pretty easy case to go to the Board of Governors, most of which you have nominated, and said, hey, he's under fucking federal investigation. We should probably get rid of him. Yeah? Cool. Um, in other cleanup news, Andrew, U.S. Interior Secretary, I think it was my favorite cabinet member, Deb Holland, on ah. Friday, <laughs> declared squaw to be a derogatory term and said she's taking steps to remove the term from federal government use and to replace other derogatory place names as well. Holland is ordering a federal panel tasked with naming geographic areas and geographic places to implement procedures to remove what she called racist terms from federal use. I So obviously, I'm, I am all behind that, right? But what exactly does this mean practically, right? Under Holland's order, a federal task force will find replacement names for geographic features on federal lands bearing the term squaw, which, if you don't know, has been used as a slur, particularly for indigenous women. Um, A data, and you might be thinking, like, how widespread is this? Well, a database maintained by the board on geographic names shows that there are currently more than 650 federal sites with names that contain the term. Yeah. Being from Arizona, this is very personal for me. How about from, but you know, I spent 18 years of my life there. I lived on Squaw Bush Parkway. Oh, wow. I, I took the Squaw Peak Parkway to high school every day and I, hi- I hiked uh, on Squaw Peak. Um, the task force though, this task force that she's putting together will be made up of representatives from federal land management agencies and experts within the interior department. Tribal consultation and public feedback will be part of the process, but like most things in the government, (laughs) the process for changing U.S. place names can take years. And federal officials said there are currently hundreds of proposed name changes being, uh, that are pending before that board. Yep. Uh, but look, this is not all. Um, Holland also called for the creation of an advisory committee to solicit, review, and recommend changes to other derogatory geographic and federal place names. That panel will be made up of tribal representatives and civil rights, anthropology, and history experts. And speaking of history, there there is precedent here, right, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, because you were going to see this spun by white nationalist assholes like Tucker Carlson. I mean, you know, you can write those headlines already. This is the kind of thing we've been doing for, you know, uh, rounding up to uh, more than half a century, the better part of a century, right? In the 1960s and 1970s, the Board on Geographic Names took action to eliminate the use of derogatory terms for African-Americans and Japanese. They voted in 2008 to change the name of a prominent Phoenix mountain from Squaw Peak to uh, Piestawa Peak. To honor Army Specialist Lori Piestawa, uh, who was the first Native American woman to die in combat while serving in the U.S. military. Yep, and then uh, apart from the National Board, the, the, the Board on Geographic Names did that. They changed Squaw Peak to Piestawa Peak. 
Locally in 2020, the Phoenix City Council voted unanimously to rename Squaw Peak Parkway and Squaw Peak Drive to Paestua Peak Drive after it was decried as demeaning and degrading. And in California, the Squaw Valley Ski Resort changed its name to the Palisades Tahoe earlier this year. And uh, the resorts in Olympic Valley, which uh, was known as Squaw Valley until it hosted the 1960 Winter Olympics. Tribes in the region had been asking the resort for a name change for decades. There is also legislation pending in Congress. Now, this is over on the congressional side to address derogatory names on geographic features on public lands. States from Oregon uh, to Maine have passed laws prohibiting the use of the word squaw in place names. Uh, And and again, you know, this should not be controversial when the group to which it refers is petitioning you to remove it as derogatory. I, I, I don't know what the argument for. Nah, we'd rather not. is So. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I applaud Secretary Holland on this, and uh, I think it's a great move. And um, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Stay tuned. We will be back with Comings and Goings. It's back. Big is back. Because bigger is better. 6,000 SUX, an American tradition. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, And, you know, I I feel like I need to apologize for saying that word so many times in the last segment. I hope that I never have to say it again. But, Andrew, last week you covered two stories that I'm really sad I missed. The first is the structural barriers that are preventing Biden from nominating key officials. And the second was, of course... Indictment day for Steve Bannon. (laughs) So we're going to follow up on both of those today. And then let's start with some breaking news. The 1-6 committee has issued six more high-profile subpoenas for co-conspirators and insurrectionists. I think literally none of this would have been possible were for it not the Department of Justice's correct decision to indict Steve Bannon. And Andrew, today even, breaking news right now, five more, including Roger Stone and Alex Jones. Yeah, well, let's talk about those, right? So A, you absolutely nailed it. Uh, in terms of uh, the DOJ indicting Steve Bannon and its significance. So those five, those five uh, new subpoenas breaking just as, as we go to press. Uh, the, select, the select committee um, issued subpoenas for records and testimony uh, to five more uh, insurrectionists, starting with uh, Dustin Stockton. Um, he's the guy who uh, is believed to have assisted in organizing a series of rallies after the election advancing the uh, big lie claims about the outcome, uh, including organizing the rally at the Ellipse on January 6th uh, that immediately preceded the attack on the Capitol. Uh, Stockton reportedly was concerned that the rally at the Ellipse would lead to a march to the Capitol. That would mean possible danger, which he said to him felt unsafe uh, and escalated those concerns to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. So if this tells you something about... um, the uh, knowledge circulating at the 1-6 committee, uh, I think it does to me. Yeah. And uh, his fiance, uh, Jennifer Lawrence, not that Jennifer Lawrence, was also involved in organizing these rallies. And uh, I think that Stockton is probably the guy who's been leaking the, uh, the text messages from Amy Kramer and Kylie Kramer to the Rolling, to Rolling Stone magazine. And I, I think he's probably already had 
uh, sort of informal meetings with the January 6th committee, because as we know, Liz Cheney recently said, Andrew, that we've talked to over 200 people and a lot of them want to voluntarily come and talk to us, but are requesting friendly subpoenas, right, to, to give them cover. Yeah, those are really good points. Yeah, thank you. And and next up in this group are Taylor Budowich, Budowich, <laughs> uh, who uh, I guess solicited a 501c4 organization to conduct a social media and radio advertising campaign encouraging attendance at the Ellipse rally and advancing unsupported claims about the result of the election. And of course, Roger Stone. <laughs> we all know Stone is the exception to the a- aphorism that no one is the villain in their own story. And uh, he was in Washington on January 5th and January 6th, spoke at rallies on January 5th. He was slated to speak at January 6th, uh, the Ellipse rally that directly preceded the violent attack on the Capitol. Before traveling to Washington, Stone promoted his attendance at the rallies and solicited support uh, to pay for security uh, through the website (laughs) stopthesteal.org. While in Washington, Stone uh, reportedly used members of the Oath Keepers, as we know, to protect him uh, his personal security guards, at least one of whom has been indicted for his involvement in the attack on the Capitol. Uh, of course, we heard from the New York Times as early as February that Roger Stone was under federal investigation for his participation and has made remarks that he was planning to lead the march to the Capitol from the Ellipse rally. Yeah. And uh, in saving the best for last news, Alex Jones. Oh, man, mm-hmm. like things could not keep going wrong for a more yes. deserving asshole. Right. Last week, he got a bunch more default judgments uh, entered against him uh, in connection with the uh, uh, with his in- insane and defamatory claims that uh, Sandy Hook parents uh, were crisis actors. Um, and now Congress would like to speak to him. Um, it's about time. Right. <sighs> Alex Jones reportedly helped organize the rally at the Ellipse. Um he uh, facilitated uh, a donation to provide what what Alex Jones, you know, not a reliable source, but uh, described as 80 percent of the funding for that rally. Uh, he spoke at the January 5th rally on Freedom Plaza that was sponsored by the 80 percent coalition. Alex Jones has stated that he was told by the White House that he was to lead the march <laughs> from the Ellipse rally down to the... A lot of these idiots seem to have been told the same thing. Interesting. Um, where then President Trump would meet the group and speak. And uh, yeah, Jones has repeatedly promoted uh, unsupported allegations of election fraud uh, on his uh, television and radio shows. Uh, including encouraging individuals to attend uh, the Ellipse rally on January 6th uh, and implying that he had knowledge about the plans of the former president with respect to the rally. I cannot wait. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's a That's a, a good round of subpoenas. And, you know, I do think it's they were they were waiting to test the waters with Bannon and, and the Department of Justice came back. With the, yeah. with the with the Bannon indictment and, and, and none of these fools work for the government either. So while they seem to be a little bit hesitant on Meadows because he actually did work for the government and might have case by case executive privilege claims. None Alex of these fools Jones do. has no executive privilege. No, no but, but I'm Meadows. Um, no, no, no. I, I was I was agreeing with you. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. OK. Now, uh, aside from all that cool news, we have a slew of nominees to talk to about we uh, talk to you about we have tia johnson m tia johnson nominee for the u.s court of appeals for the armed forces uh dimitri let's see is it kuznetsov i would say kuznetsov kuznetsov he's nominee for undersecretary for science and technology uh department of homeland security 
Steve Fagan, Stephen Fagan, nominee for ambassador extraordinary and pl- plenipotentiary. <laughs> Why are sorry. you giving this to I'm me? I'm sorry. <laughs> ambassador of extraordinary and plenipotentiary to the Republic of Yemen. Jody Herman. Did I get it right? Yes. Okay. Jody Herman, <laughs> nominee for the assistant administrator for El Elegante. No, I'm just kidding. For uh, legislative and public affairs, U.S. Agency for International Development. Lester Martinez Lopez, nominee for Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, Department of Defense. And uh, that's my old office, Interagency Health Affairs. Yeah. With, yeah. And uh, Rebecca Jones Gaston, nominee for Commissioner for the Administration for Children, Youth, and Families, Department of Health and Human Services. Yep. And in addition to that, we have two new federal judicial nominees, uh, Article Three courts, right? Uh, that brings the total number of appointments to 64. Uh, which again, uh, leaning into the headwinds that is uh, the obstruction of uh, of the Senate is uh, is is pretty good. Um, so first up, Andre B. Mathis, the uh, president's new nominee for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Mathis would become the first black man uh, and the second black person to sit on the Sixth Circuit uh, from Tennessee. The last time a black man was confirmed to the Sixth Circuit was uh, 24 years ago. Yeah. And finally, the president's new nominee to serve in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, Judge Allison J. Nathan. Excellent name. She would be the second openly LGBTQ plus woman to serve on any federal circuit court. The first is uh, current Second Circuit Judge Beth Robinson from Vermont, who is uh, nominated by President Biden earlier this year and confirmed by the, the Senate November 1st. Yep. 2021. Yeah. So welcome all of aboard. These delays, all of these senatorial Cruz and Hawley delays, especially in the national security and diplomat realm. Um, and then and then, of course, you know, we've got them slow walking the new D.C. Uh, U.S. attorney and the new U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, who just got there on November 5th and October 10th, respectively. Uh, and and that's where mo- if any if if any Mueller Volume Two obstruction charges come out, the Bannon indictment is the yep. D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Anything that Trump did, what we when he chat in the Oval Office is the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And then of course Southern District of New York, who who uh, Trump and Barr had to bring to heel during their administration. And I think we're finally flushing out the uh, get did, we're get you know, a blow in the dust off of the Southern District of New York. Yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right. And again, all we can do is, you know, document the the process and, uh, you know, try and expose what's going on behind the scenes. Yep. Bringing uh, sunlight to the darkness, right? (laughs) Truth to power. There we go. What we have been doing. Thank you so much. It's, it's, it's been it's been great to see you again. And you know we're back on, and we're going to continue to keep bringing you a cleanup on L forty five. And 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 that is all because of the support of our patrons. I just have to thank them one more time, Andrew. They're amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. We love doing the show, and uh, you know we 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 it really does. We, I, I I can't tell you how much it uh, it means to us when we uh, when we see folks enjoy the show as much as we do yes and so thank you and everybody we will see you next week on episode 46 of clean up on aisle 45 <laughs> everything will be in the rear view mirror from a new on. hope is what we're <laughs> going to call it <laughs> all right <laughs> until then i've been allison gill and i'm andrew torres see you next week Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. 
Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.